continue this morning on our series of the Fruit of the Spirit, looking at the first one that's listed in Galatians chapter 5 on the Fruit of the Spirit is love. And as we enter into this, we are wrestling with this idea of not just simply what is a list of virtues, because it is entirely possible to have a morally restrained heart without having a supernaturally changed heart, as Tim Keller said. So how is it that the Holy Spirit actually generates a heart that produces these things? And that's what we're focusing on here this morning and through this series. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love... I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. We'll stop there. Join with me in prayer. Holy Spirit, open our hearts to your truth, to your word. Would you change hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh where there is callousness? Where would you give us tenderness? And Lord, in a supernatural way, would your spirit attend these words that we would encounter you and experience your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love is one of the most important words in our entire language. It's also one of the most confusing words. It's a word that's used in every culture of the world. It is the basis of many different ethical systems all of which esteem love and value love. And in Christianity itself, the founder of Christianity, Jesus said, that love would be a distinctive mark of Christians and of his followers. And it's also known in the, uh, in the general world as well that you know, psychologists, counselors, teachers, social workers you know, have identified that love is one of our primary emotional needs. And it's amazing that what people will do for love, they will climb mountains, swim oceans, go through great difficulty, hardship, and sacrifice. But without love, those mountains become insurmountable, oceans become undefeatable, hardship becomes all-consuming. Some years ago in his book, The Five Love Languages, Gary Chapman wrote how uh, wrote this book to help couples and families to communicate one, to one another, to love one another, to learn how to show love and how to receive love and experience love. And it's a, it's a helpful book that gives a lot of different practical advice. And the basis of his book is one of the things that he argues is that you are, unca- you are incapable of loving unless your own love tank is full. And if your love tank is not full, you don't have any love to give out. And so he talks about how Couples can communicate with each other and show love and and build and fill up each other's love tank. But one of the things that he does not address is how do you love someone who not only has not filled your love tank, but has actually poked holes in it and taken a sledgehammer to it and then crushed it and twisted it and shrunk it and demolished it? How do you love somebody like that 
And how do you love when your own love tank, per se, has been demolished? That's what Paul addresses here in this passage. Really, we're just going to look at two things, what love is not and what love is. He begins by telling us what it's not in verse 2. He says that love is simply, it's just not being a very helpful person. Don't confuse it with love. He says, if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. All of these different things he listed here are various talents and gifts that sometimes people possess. And if you meet someone who has these gifts and abilities, they're really, really helpful. Someone who has prophetic powers. In Paul's usage in Corinthians, that would be someone who's a powerful preacher. Someone who can communicate the truth of Scripture. And when he communicates it, it changes your life. When you have someone who can understand all mysteries, this is a person who has in-depth knowledge of the Bible and they're able to explain it really clearly. It's the type of person that when you listen to them, you say, ah, you know what, I never understood that before, but I understand it now. It's a person who has, who's able to understand all mysteries. Someone who has all knowledge. This is someone who is the person that you want to talk to when you have a problem. You're dealing with a difficult situation. This is the go-to person because they've got the answers and they've got great answers and they've got the right answers. And he says, and if I have the faith to, to remove mountains, this is not your normal faith. This is visionary faith. It is faith that affects change. It inspires other people. And Paul says, if I can be helpful in all of these different ways, in all of these remarkable ways, but have not love, I am nothing. How is that possible? How is it possible for someone to have prophetic powers to explain the truth of Scripture's and not love. Scripture says it's possible. In fact, Jesus himself even said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom. He said that, and, they, and the people would respond to him and saying, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And he says, I tell you, I tell you the truth, I never knew you. How does that happen? Because though they can do these remarkable things, though they can be really helpful, though they can have a huge impact, if done without love, they are nothing. I think you've probably experienced this yourself. Why we even, I would even say why we even tolerate this, is that I'm sure you've come across ministry leaders, that you've come across coworkers, um, maybe people in your life who are really knowledgeable, who were really helpful, you know, that if you could get their attention, they had the answers that you wanted, and you kept going to that person because they gave really good answers, and and they gave really good answers, and the answers that they gave were probably the best answers that you could get. But despite how helpful they were, they were just a jerk. You know, they were just unpleasant. They were, they were grumpy. They were irritable. They, they made you feel like an idiot, even though they had the right answer. Now, why is it that people like that get away with being a jerk? How do they get away with that? Well, we tolerate it because they're really helpful. We tolerate it because they're really gifted. And because they, have, they can have a really big impact. And so we excuse the lack of love, and dare I say even at times we value these other things instead of love because of the benefit we, be, we receive. But Paul clarifies that without love, it's nothing. And then he goes on to say, not only is love not being a very helpful person, love is also not the same as living a life of sacrifice. He gives two examples. 
one we might say is a, a liberal value in our political world today, and one might we, we might say is a conservative value. It says, if I give away all that I have, if I give away all that I have, this would be your, I don't know, in our political world, your most uh, extreme example of, uh, of liberalism, someone that just completely gives everything away, not, not unique to that, but certainly a high value within that uh, within that culture. So here you have a person who sells their house, they empty out their 401k, they empty out their bank, they give away their cars. We admire people like Bill Gates for their radical generosity. We admire people who are of low means, like in Scripture, such as the widow who just gave a mite, who just gave a teeny little bit, but it was hugely sacri- sacrificial. And he says, look at this, if I give away all that I have, And that's quite possible to do it without love. And then he goes to the other side. He says, and if I give a life of sacrifice, if I deliver up my body to be burned, this would be oftentimes a conservative value. This is martyrdom. I mean, this is a a religious believer who who has not forsaken their faith. This is a person who, when when the option was being fed to the lions or to recant, they did not recant. Someone who was burned at the stake. Or Hebrews might say they were someone who was sawn in two. These are people who had fortitude, people who gave themselves up and sacrificed all for what they believed. Remarkable. And Paul says, yes, it's possible for you not only to do that, for you to do that without love, and if you do it without love, you gain nothing. Both of these things, being very helpful, being very effective, being very sacrificial, all of these things are actually spiritually worthless. Spiritually worthless. And he makes it expressly clear in verse 1. It's a verse we kind of skip over. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, if I do, if, if I have the ability to do the most extreme demonstration of a supernatural outpouring of giftedness, If in my life I have the ability, the most supernatural demonstration to do this, if I don't do this with love, he says, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Now, what is that? I mean, does he not like cymbals? Like, what's what's Paul's beef here? It's not so much, that's not the issue. What he's referencing here is that this was the worship practice of the ancient pagan temples. And so what would happen is that the ancient pagan temples, they would go through all kinds of rituals, they would go through dramatic ceremonies, they would do the obedience required, and they would have these noisy gongs, and they would have these banging cymbals in order to get the attention of their God, whoever that might be. And to get the attention of their God, they would make all this noise and say, hey, look at me. Look what I have done. And Paul says, if you do all of these remarkable things, sacrificial service, being very helpful, unmistakably supernatural gifting given to you, he says, if you do that, Without love, it is spiritually worthless. Worthless. Imagine that. How how could he say that? How could I mean, really? How could this be spiritually, spiritually worthless? Well, the question exposes the answer. How is this spiritually worthless? How is the life of sacrifice? How is martyrdom? How is radical generosity? How is explaining scripture? How is that spiritually worthless? Again, the question exposes the answer. 
Because if you're looking at this to say, well, surely that has some spiritual worth. Surely that, surely that gives you some sort of spiritual credibility. Surely, surely that gives you some sort of spiritual benefit. If the motivation and the drive behind this is to have some sort of spiritual worth, some sort of spiritual benefit in doing so, then what becomes clear is that the reason why you're doing it is not out of love for God, but you're doing it out of love for yourself. You're doing it in order to gain divine blessing in however it would be that you perceive it. You're doing it in order to garner favor from your God however it is. And Paul says, no, that's not the way that the relationship with the Lord works. So if you do all these things and have not love, they're worthless. I think that same idea of people doing loving things, what are perceived as loving things, people loving, people loving selfishly, I think you've probably experienced that in your own life. I mean, it's quite possible to love someone, as the term's commonly used, to love someone not for their sake, but for your own. You hear it in when people talk about how much they love each other. People say things like this, you know what, no, no other person has ever made me feel the way that you make me feel. I love you so much. Is that really love for the other person's benefit? No, it's love for their own. I love the way you make me feel. I feel so awesome when I'm around you. I love it. I love myself so much that I love being around people who love me. And because I love being around people who love me so much, I just love you because you know how awesome I am, and we can just love me more. And so people say that all things like that all the time. And so the reason why they're loving, as it's commonly used, is not to love the other person, but to love themselves. And that gets manifested in a variety of ways. Other times it's because people, uh, you know, there's love that's a conditional love. Maybe you've experienced that. That's a love where, you know, you are loved, you experience love, you, you are given affection, you are given relationship as long as you meet certain standards. And as long as you meet those standards, the, the relationship and the affection is given, but if you fail to meet those standards, those things are withheld. That's not love, that's manipulation. That is, I'm going to give you love and affection if, you, if I can coerce you to act in a certain way. That's not love. Why is a person doing that? If they're loving in that way, they're doing that. I am, I'm going to give you affection. Why? So I can gain your obedience. It's not loving for the other person. It's loving for themselves. And there could be many other, many other examples of this. But when we look at this passage, why, is Paul, why does Paul include this? I think he includes this passage because in many ways... Corinth, the, church to which, the location of the church to which he was writing, Corinth is in some ways like Southern Maryland. Corinth was a community of gifted and talented and successful people. Corinth was a place that people came to excel and to advance in their career. Like many people come here to Southern Maryland to advance in their career. As a result, their church was filled with very smart, gifted, talented, and successful people. And their church was serving. Their church was serving other people. Their church was making an impact. Their church was growing. And Paul looks at this church and he says, all of your gifts, all of your, at times, unmistakably supernatural blessings upon you, all of your service, all of your talents, all of the impact that you are having, all of your sacrifice, that is actually possible without love. But without love, what you are doing is nothing. And if you skip ahead to the list about love is patient, love is kind, so on and so forth, 
We know from the book of Corinthians, if you read First and Second Corinthians, we know that the church at Corinth is everything that this passage is not. The church members were impatient, they were rude, they were jealous, they were boasting, they were arrogant, they were self-serving. The worship service that they had was shameful and it was indecent. But what happened? People tolerated it. They tolerated being in a church that did not have love. And they tolerated it because people were helpful and they were sacrificial and there were remarkable things that people were doing. And so they prized the remarkable though it is worthless, more than love. Again, as Tim Keller said, it is very possible to mistake a morally restrained heart for a supernaturally changed heart. So then what is love? One short definition is this. Love is to serve a person for their good and for their intrinsic value and not for what the person brings to you. Genuine love is because someone is worth loving or that you love a person for their good, not because you hope to garner love in return. But it's important as we are about to go through this next list of what love is in these few verses, which we're going to go through each phrase, it's really important to clarify what we're doing here. What I am not about to say is this. I'm not about to say, Jesus did this, therefore you should do it. That is true, but it is insufficient. What I'm not about to say is I'm not saying Jesus is your moral example, though he is. Be like Jesus, though I hope you become more like Jesus. What I'm not doing is we're not going to go through this list and look at, okay, here's a list of 10 ways that you need to be more loving. Evaluate yourself for how you're not loving currently. Let's look at this and then figure out the ways that you need to be more loving. You get to this passage, 1 Corinthians 13. It's read at many, many weddings. It's read as a, you know, the epitome of love, which rightfully so. And it's oftentimes read as a charge to the couple on how to love your spouse. Here's 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind. Now go do it. As if the bride and groom had the ability within themselves to do it. As if when their love tank is, is empty, they had the power within themselves because of this unending source of love that emanates from their internal goodness. As if they had that within themselves to give to the other person. And as if the other person's love could actually fill their deep-seated need. So we're looking through this list here of these positive versions of what love looks like, we're not saying, hey, Scripture says love's like this, therefore go be more loving. Rather, what I'm doing here this morning is I am inviting you to experience the love of Christ. To experience the love of Christ and to know the love of Christ. And by experiencing the love of Christ and knowing the love of Christ, you will eventually over time begin to reflect the love of Christ in an increasing way. Because we learn to love by being loved. It's a common principle. Every social worker knows this. Every counselor, every teacher, every, every, they, everyone knows this. And unfortunately, there's been places in this world where there have been studies done on this exact, exact issue, where people take children who are born and say, what happens if this child is raised without love? The child's never touched, it's never held, never cuddled, has no touch, no affection, no, it's no, not actively cared for. There's no human interaction. What happens? Well, sometimes the child just flat out dies. That without love, the child just 
dies unexplicably. But other times what happens is that those children grow up. When they become adults, do they suddenly get to this point and say, you know what? The love that I never received, I now have it within me to, to show the world. And I'm going to come become the most loving person who has ever lived on the face of the earth because of what I did. No. What happens? For many of them, they actually become incapable of loving. Incapable of either giving love or incapable of receiving love in both directions. Is that we learn to love by being loved, and the more we are loved, the more we love somebody else. And so when we look at this passage of Scripture in terms of this list of what love looks like, before love is something that you go out and do, love is something that happens to you. It's something that you meet. It is something that you experience. As Keller says, he says, love is not something you try to do, but it's a power that picks you up. It's a power that changes you. Why? Because love, in order to know love, to experience love, to be love, love is much more than an idea. It is a person. It's a person. In fact, Scripture says, God is love. And so as Paul lists out this verse of all these things that love is, How does he know that? He knows it because this is the love that he has known and experienced through Jesus Christ personally. So consider this. Love is patient. Love is kind. How do I know that? I know that that love is patient and kind is because I know that Jesus Christ is patient and kind with me. That he doesn't treat me as my sins deserve. He doesn't repay me for the wrongs that I have done. He is patient and kind with me. When I go outside in a beautiful day like yesterday and I see the blue sky and I go out there and I look at that and I see the beauty of it, I know that, that the steadfast love of the Lord extends to me as high as the heavens are above the earth. And for the wrong things that I've done in my life, he doesn't repay me according to those things, but rather it says as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us. When I look at a globe and my wife goes to the Philippines and I'm putting us on the globe and I'm spinning it around and showing where, where our team is going on the other side of the globe, on the east is the west. Scripture says that's how far God, God takes our sin from us. That's how I know love is patient and kind because that's how Jesus Christ has loved me. And when it says that love does not envy or boast, It's not arrogant or rude. Yes, love is that way because that's how Jesus Christ is. He's not arrogant. He was the one who, though he eternally existed in the form of God, though he was united with God from all eternity, he didn't cling to that. He didn't grasp onto it and say, I'm not going to let it go. But rather what he did is that he humbled himself. He, He set aside his glory. He humbled himself and became a servant. And he became obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And because Christ has loved me that way, that he became, humbled himself and suffered on the cross in my place so that I would know him and I would know his love and I would know that his love, that he is not, that he is not arrogant. Love does not insist on its own way. Because Jesus did not insist in his own way when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was about to be crucified, as he anticipated the torture that was before him, as he anticipated the full cup of God's wrath 
about to be poured out on him for your sins and for my sins so that we would not have to experience that. As he was anticipating this in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to his father as drops of blood are, are dripping from his head in anguish. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What did he want? He wanted his own way. He wanted to not go through it. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. But he did not insist on his own way. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And submitted himself to death in the will of his heavenly Father. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Resentful, that's keeping a record of wrongs. That's the thing to say, you know what? I remember what you did back to me in 1971. And I have not forgotten it. And though other people may not be aware of it, I have not forgotten it. I remember what you said to me when we were at Thanksgiving dinner, and I said this and you said that, and I'm not going to let it go. That's being resentful. That's keeping a record of wrongs and holding it up against the person and saying, because of what happened, I, that what happened, I will make that a barrier in our relationship. And I will not approach you, and I will not bend, and in fact, I will hold this against you. I will be resentful for you. But that's not love. Because love is not irritable. It's not resentful. And blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Though he is the one who actually knows the full record of our wrong, he says, and though he is the one who could actually hold up the full record of our wrong before us, and we come to him and we pray to him again, he could say, yeah, but do you remember what you said last week? And do you remember how last week you said you weren't going to do that again? And then you did it again? And that was because of the time before that you said you weren't going to do it, and then you did it again then too? And then you remember that time when you were just outrightly, that just out blatantly selfish? Do you remember that time? He doesn't do that. It's not irritable, resentful. He does not count our sins against us. He does not hold them up against us and shove them and shove them in our face. He does not rejoice. Love is, love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but, re, but it rejoices with the truth. Imagine that. That Jesus, his words, I know that love is truthful. I know it's truthful. Because Jesus' words are always truthful. They always give me life. That he never delights when someone says, well, you know what, the ends justify the means, and sometimes you just got to say certain things. No. In his entire life, he committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. Having experienced that, I know that love is true. Then he goes on to say, love bears all things. Love believes all things. It hopes all things. Love, love endures all things. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, he's hanging there. He's just been tortured. He's been up for many, many hours, beaten, whipped, flogged, nailed in his hands and feet, a crown of thorns up on his head. And while he is hanging there, bearing all things, bearing the wrath of God upon him, taking the punishment that's due for your sins and my sins, bearing all things, Keeping himself there because he believes in God's faithfulness and God's promises because he hopes in that God's word is true and it will certainly come to pass. And he is there enduring the suffering. And while he is hanging on the cross, someone next to him who's rightfully being crucified says, Hey Jesus, remember me when I come into your kingdom. Can you imagine the time when you were in the most anguish ever in your life? 
a time when you were in deep and profound anguish, how easy was it for you to think about somebody else? How easy was it for you at that moment of intensity to be concerned about someone else's well-being? And there is Jesus hanging on the cross, and he says to this, this thief who's being rightfully crucified, today you will be with me in paradise. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, it endures all things. Shortly before, moments before he died, the text tells us that Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's fed some, drinks some sour wine, and he cries out, it is finished. And he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. It is finished. When most people die from suffocation, they fade away because they've lost oxygen, particularly people who've died over a, an extended period of time. But he doesn't fade away. He dies with a gasp. He dies with a cry. He dies with a shout out, declaring, it is finished. That the payment for people's sins has been made. That the work that he came to do has been completed. Tim Keller observes, he says, Jesus refused to die until he had done what he had come to do. He refused to die until he had come what to do. Why? Because love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. He was hanging on until the final sin was paid for. And when he was finally done, he could shout out, it is finished. The debt has been paid. And then he died. Belairs all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. For Scripture says that because of the work of Jesus Christ, God says, I will never leave you and never forsake you. I will never, ever, 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 no, never. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Love never fails because Jesus never fails. And so you can look at this list and you can look at this list and say, you know what, that exposes some areas of my life where I just really need to, I just, I really just need to try harder. And maybe you do. But such an attitude is never going to change you. It's never going to make you more loving. In fact, if you look at it closely enough and you try hard enough, it will actually crush you. But the other option is that you can look at this list and you can see that love is not a concept, but love is a person. Love is something that you experience. Love is something that you receive. And you can look at this list and look at this and say, wow, look at all of the ways that Jesus has loved me. Look at all of the ways that Jesus does love me. And there's this amazing thing happens that in order to experience this love, you have to believe it. Like in order to receive it, you have to believe it. And when you believe in what Christ did, and when you believe that he is the source of love, that he is the one who not only gives love but has given love to you, when you are unloving and unlovable and not deserving of it in any regard, and that you can look at this list and you can see all the ways that Jesus has done for you, he said, as you believe it, you actually begin to receive it, and His Spirit comes and dwells in you. And as His Spirit dwells in you, eventually the love of Christ becomes reproducent in you. 
So how do you cultivate love as a fruit of the Spirit? You do so by knowing the love of God more deeply, more intimately, by knowing the love of Christ. And the way that you do that is if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, the way that it occurs is this is not a list of saying, here's all the ways that God wants you to be more loving, so go be more loving, then God will love you. No, that's not the way it works. The way that it works is God says, look at all of the ways that I have loved you. Look at all the ways that I have already demonstrated love to you. Are you going to believe it? Are you going to receive it? There is nothing that you have to do except believe and receive that it is there for you. And when you believe it and you receive it, then the Spirit of God works in you so that you're free to live it. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, and this is your joy, <laughs> it's your joy that Jesus, your joy is Jesus, and you're faced with loving a difficult person that you've got areas of your life where you've got resentment that you won't let go, you've got areas where you have put up barriers towards another person, or you've got a situation where you're looking for some other person to fill your love tank, they can't. They, they cannot. They don't have the capacity, they don't have the ability, they don't have the power to do it. There's only one person who can, and that is Jesus Christ. And so the call for you is to reflect on the love of Christ. Remember the love of Christ. Believe and celebrate what Christ has done and receive it. And as you know the love of Christ, as you know it personally and experientially and as relationally, as you know the love of Christ by his grace, you will grow in loving like Christ. Let's pray together. Father, it is humbling that you love us with no merit from ourselves. That you love us not because we were the good choice, not because you were picking the right people for your team. Lord, you love us simply because you love us. And though we are not the reason for your affection, you have made us the object of it. Though Christ himself is the reason for your affection as the eternal Son of God who lived perfectly, who was perfectly obedient, who was the perfect Son, who was the perfect child that we could never be and never have been. You gave him for us so that we could know your love and experience your love. Father, for those of us who are in situations where we have difficult people to love, Lord, may we reflect on your great love for us and may we not see your love and feel that because of a sense of resentful duty, we need to act differently. No, Father, because of your love and because of the experience of your love, may your love fill us with joy. May we love others in the way that you have loved us. May we love people who have hurt us in just a fraction to the, of the degree that we have hurt you. And because that you pursued after us, that you didn't sit back, you didn't say, wait, when you get your act together, when you come to me, no, you went after us. Father, would your great love for us free us to love radically, to love sacrificially, to love in extraordinary ways because of the power of knowing Jesus Christ, our resurrected Savior.
In his name we pray, amen. Let God's love fill you and overwhelm you as you respond to him. Please stand.